0: This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com, promoting excellency in professional hospice chaplaincy. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. For more information, you can visit hospicechaplaincy.com. We are your host, Joe Newton. And I'm Saul Abema. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Uh, my co host Joy is out of town today, but today I have a special guest for you. Uh, we have Reverend Dr. Terry Daniels joining us. She's an end of life advisor, expert in interfaith chaplaincy, certified clinical trauma specialist, bereavement support specialist, and an expert in the field of death and dying. As an expert in the field of death and dying, when someone asks you, What do you do? Uh, What do you normally tell them?
1: You know, as you well know, that is a really tough question. Um, Mm. What I I say now is that I'm an end-of-life educator Mm. and grief counselor because that kind of sums up what I spend most of my time doing right now. A couple years ago, I would have said I was a chaplain because I was doing chaplain work, but I'm really Mm. not doing that anymore. So basically, I'm teaching... Um, I'm actually doing teaching at the, uh, Graduate Theological Union hmm. uh, uh, in a chaplaincy program on interreligious chaplaincy, hmm. and I'm also teaching online for the Association of Death Education and Counseling and the Hospice Foundation of America. So those hmm. are little online programs. So may, basically, right now I'm call myself an educator hmm. in death, dying, and grieving.
0: That's a that's an amazing calling.
1: It certainly is, it certainly is, and I'm sure you know, you know, when people ask you what you do, it's, you know, what they always say, just talk to, a I had a computer problem this morning, and I was talking to a tech support guy, and he was in my account, and he saw all my websites, and he said, what's all this stuff about death, you know, what do you do? And when I told him, he said, he said the same thing everybody says, wow, you must be an extraordinary person to do this, and I'm like, no, I'm not an extraordinary person. You know, I'm just a person who's had some experience with death and grief, Mm. and it called it called to me. Mm. I'm not extraordinary at all. You know, I think I enjoy being around death and dying, so I suppose that makes me a little odd.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you made a very important point there. This this called you. This ministry called you. Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Los Angeles. And I was born in 1953, so I was in Los Angeles in the 50s and 60s and some of the 70s. And then um, I realized I hated living in the city, so I I moved around a lot. I lived in Arizona. I lived in Alabama for a while. uh, And I lived in Oregon for about 10 years, which I loved more than anything. Hmm. And now I'm in Northern California. And I grew up in a very non-religious Jewish family um, who, you know, they really enjoyed the cultural aspects of being Jewish. You know, they liked the holidays and the family get-togethers, but they had no interest in theology or spiritual content of any kind. So I was always so curious Mm -hmm. about spirituality that, when I was 16, I read the Bible just because I wanted to, and I had to go buy one because we didn't even have one in, in the house.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. And
1: then uh, right around that time, uh, a Hare Krishna temple mm-hmm. moved in to a building around the corner from our house, and so I started going there and listening to their teachers, and I just got interested in everything, and I've always had an interface. Kind of perspective
0: well, what did your parents think I mean uh, about your spiritual curiosity
1: Good question <laughs> um, My parents were very liberal and they were actually they didn't have a problem with it. you know it's mm-hmm. not like they were religious and thought that I was dabbling with the devil or something. you know it was the sixties, <laughs> and everybody was experimenting and and they didn't have a problem with it now that I am sixty seven years old and I've been in theology school for 10 years, mm. um, and I've studied religious history, you know, in a formal way, now they're not happy with me.
0: Oh, <laughs> no! <laughs> what changed? Because,
1: because I know too much, <laughs>
0: right? The price of knowledge, huh?
1: <laughs> the price of knowledge, exactly. <laughs> So, you know, do you want me to give you an example? Please, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> uh, so, so as I said, they're Jewish and they celebrate Passover every year, but they do it in a very lightweight, commercial, secular sort of way. So they have a Passover Seder and they put the lamb shank and the egg in the bowl of salt water and they do the whole thing. And they... The the prayer service that comes with Passover is called a Haggadah. Hmm. And when you go to the grocery store and you buy a box of matzah, it comes in the box. It's just a little pamphlet. So they sit around and they read the pamphlet and they tell the story of the Exodus and the plagues. And as I got more educated hmm. about theology and religious history, I said to them, you know, there's no historical evidence that the entire tribe of Judah was ever enslaved in Egypt. Um, We don't know that for a fact, and it's really great to look at this as a mythical story that's teaching us an underlying spiritual lesson rather than a literal historical thing. And I would love to, at your next Passover, come and, and do another kind of service where we look at the Exodus story as the journey of the spiritual path where we're Hmm. born into slavery just by virtue of the fact that we're born into bodies and we're sort of a slave to the ego. Hmm. And we spend an entire lifetime, which would have been 40 years back then, Hmm. wandering lost, looking for our way back to union with the divine, i.e. the promised land. That's what that story really means. And boy, did they get mad at me about
0: that. That's quite an amazing concept, but they didn't like it.
1: Oh, they hated it. They said, wow. we just want to do it the way we do it. This is how we've always done it. We're really not interested in that stuff. I once said something to my mother about Yahweh, hmm. and she said, what's Yahweh? <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> so over yeah. now, over the months, are they still open to this kind of discussion?
1: My dad Kind of. Hmm. Uh, my mom is gone now. My sister, not even a little bit. And you know, back to death and dying. When my mom was dying, my my sister and her husband and their son are all doctors. And hmm. um, as I'm sure you have discovered, doctors don't have any training in end of life care or no, death not awareness. Much. Not yeah, much. and so. um When my mom was dying, fortunately, they, you know, agreed to hospice. And when I was down there and uh, trying to use the benefit of my experience, you know, saying things like, for example, you know, when a person is still conscious and awake and they're talking, that's the time to hug them and kiss them and tell them that you love them.
2: Mm. But
1: once they start, you know, taking some heavy morphine and they're starting to fade out and they're not responsive... You really should kind of back off and give them a little space. You don't want to be laying on top of them, crying in their ear when they're mm. actively dying. Yeah. And you know they wouldn't listen to that at all. <laughs>
0: you know. Oh, wow. Wow, you are giving <laughs> and, them very valuable knowledge.
1: Yeah. So it's been, you know, it's you know you hear stories about um, people and their families with religion issues, right? Like. Mm. The family is fundamentalist Christian and the other person is not, and yes. there's always a conflict. Yes. This is, is, in my family, it's kind of like that, but it also has to do with end of life care. And now my father is getting close to dying, and, you know, same thing. My sister and brother in law and nephew, who are all doctors, have taken complete control of his care. He's 93 years old. Mm. He got a pacemaker a couple months ago, and now they're giving him another uh, procedure. And anything other than face death. Mm. Yep,
0: that must be challenging though for the family.
1: It's well for me. All, what it does is, I just from it's kind of like you learn in chaplain training mm. how to just kind of keep your opinions to yourself, mm. right? And for just the sake how of to this. just. Yes, for the sake of peace. And, you know, to not try to convince anybody of anything and meet people where they are and all of that. And yes. So it's a good exercise for me in doing that with my family.
0: Uh, so how did your journey uh, begin to this kind of work, to chaplaincy well, or to death and dying?
1: You know, beginning with the fact that, you know, I was always interested in spiritual stuff. I got interested in death because my son... Um, got diagnosed at age 10 with a very rare metabolic disorder and given 5 to 10 years to live. And so he uh, needed total care at the end. It was a progressively degenerative disease. And so I went through many years of caregiving, and he died when he was 16. I was quite prepared for that because I had, you know, six years to prepare for it, and um, trying to get him used to the idea of dying was a real education for me, and I realized that, you know, little kids in America, the only thing they ever see about death is what they see on TV and in Mm. movies, and it's always...
0: The media influence.
1: And I didn't want him to think that's what death was going to be like. So um, I started getting books from the library and looking for information from other cultures, Hmm. from Native Americans and Buddhists and, you know, anything that I could find where people had a, a more beautiful view of death. And I started sharing that information with him. And I realized many years later that he was really the teacher, not me. (laughs) <laughs> and then when he died his, his death was just beautiful you know beautiful peaceful death and as i was sitting there with him i wasn't there when he took his actual last breath most people aren't as you probably know yeah. but um you know i could feel his spirit leave his body i could feel him i still do it's been 13 years now um he was very close to me after he died and um I wanted to share that feeling with people about, you know, how beautiful this can be. And I figured that if I can feel that way about a child, then how hard could it be to feel that way about a 90-year-old grandparent?
0: Wow, wow. That that must have been tough uh, in, to journey with your son in that difficult situation.
1: It it was and it wasn't. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting... Um, Way to have a relationship with a child because, yeah. you know, normally you have a kid and you plan for their life and you save money for them to go to college and they learn how to drive and you worry about them getting in trouble. And I had a very different experience as a parent. I never had to do any of that. I had this child who was easy to protect in in one way, you know, from mm-hmm. the dangers of life. It, there was just this one thing I couldn't protect him from, which was this disease. But it, it made us so close because we were together all the time mm. and we had such a strong bond. And I also made sure that his life was happy all the time. So we traveled, you know, we went to amusement parks all over the State we you know took a helicopter ride over Hawaii. we went to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I just filled his life wow. with things that I wouldn't have done if he had just been a typical kid.
0: So who prepared you for um, for this kind of journey with him? how did you how did you prepare? I can imagine it's hard. Yeah, but
1: is um, it I don't know. you uh, know, I don't know how I prepared for that. I think it might have just been my sort of natural understanding of spirituality. I also, after I read the Bible when I was 16, Mm. when I was 19, I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And that changed everything for me, because that gave me a description of how we're born and where we go when we die. And it made so much more sense to me than anything i had ever heard. And so I think that helped a lot and just the whole spiritual path i'd been on all those years before my son got sick um i understood impermanence Mm. Uh, i understood attachment and how attached we are you know i mean so much of grieving is so selfish
0: Hmm. because
1: it's about i don't want you to die yes right it's about me what i want and and I I was able to see beyond that. It's like, okay, this wow. isn't just about me. This kid, this person, any person, um, I believe, you know, their soul, their consciousness has some sort of intention in this life. Mm-hmm. And if, if that intention involves dying from a terrible disease at 16, who am I to say that that's not supposed to happen? I don't get to say that right yeah. some people would say if you if you put it in different language some people would say well it's up to god it's god's will and i'm just saying the same thing in different
0: words in different really, words you know? so you yeah. had a, an a amazing level of death acceptance because mm-hmm. most of us struggle with accepting the reality of death oh yes and we fight it but you had you had reached that uh, an amazing level of death acceptance and this is your baby
1: yeah apparently that's True, (laughs) you know, even though he's only the first person close to me that ever died. I had a grandmother who died and a dog who died, and that was my only experience with death until him. So there was just something about what he and I were supposed to do together in this life that made it not only acceptable but embraceable. Mm. Because look what happened afterwards, you know, after that, I became a hospice volunteer and then went back to school and, you know, got a degree in religious studies and did CPE and became a chaplain. And now then I went and got the doctor of ministry. And so it's like his death gave me a meaningful life that I might not have had otherwise. When I tell this story to people who have lost a child, I I always say, you know, this doesn't mean that you have to do what I did. This doesn't mean that you have to you know, go back to school and become a chaplain and do this, you'll find your own way of making meaning. Some people, you know, um, start support groups or they start a, a fundraising foundation or they just change the way they see the world or they change the way they interact with their family. Um, that's what's supposed to happen with grief, is that it's supposed to change you. And if you go through a healthy grieving process, it will change you for the better.
0: mm mm-hmm. And changing, it it really did change you. You've done a lot of writings on grief. Yes. Talk to us more about your work on grief. It's important to you.
1: Yeah. Well, um, uh, in, in, in Western modern culture, we have very few tools for coping with grief. And, um, you know, we have a funeral. Then everybody comes to your house for a couple of days, and they bring you food, and then maybe you go to a grief group or a grief counselor, and that's it, and that's nothing. It doesn't even go into the soul at that level. It's just mm. so, so empty. And when you look, I mean, you're from Africa, so you yes. are probably, you're from Sudan, right? Yes, South Sudan. Um, are you familiar with a woman named Sabonfu Somme? Have you ever heard of her? no. So she she's from Burkina Faso hmm. and she um had traveled all over the world teaching this grief ritual from the Dagara people hmm. and, and and in her village what they did is they when somebody died and they were grieving, they would have a three day ceremony. And during that three days they did all kinds of little rituals and ceremonies and people would dance and cry and sing and make little altars and all this stuff. And she came to America. She's dead now. And she brought this ceremony all over the country and and taught it to a lot of people. And I had the great honor of being taught that. And I realized that we don't have anything like that here. So Mm -hmm. my workshop, Grief as a Mystical Journey, is kind of based on what I learned from her You know, and, um, but I, you know, made it my own. I didn't just steal her ideas. I I was inspired, uh, by her ideas. And so what it does is it shows people how to use, um, ceremony.
0: Ceremony, okay.
1: And, um, you know, different tools like art and movement and vocalizing and, um, Uh, Small group work, you know, just to really spend a day or a weekend or however long the workshop is, just delving right into it and using actual tools. Like, for example, um, one of the uh, tools that I use, and I borrow things from many other cultures. So one of the things I do is from the shamans in South America Hmm. where I have people take a piece of ribbon or string about three or four feet long and roll it up into a little ball. And as they're rolling it up into a little ball, they're telling the story of their pain and their grief Hmm. and their anger and whatever. They're rolling it up into a ball, and they're like, I'm so angry. Why did you leave me? I'm angry at God, and I can't get over this. And then they have this little ball of pain. And then we go outside, and we take the end of the string, and we tie it in a tree. Hmm. And we let the ball unroll. And at the end, we've got all these people's little strings hanging from a tree, and it releases the energy of that pain to God or to the elements, to the earth and the rain and the sun, any way you want to look at it. And so what it gives people is a tool that they can actually use with their hands Mm. to take that pain out of their body, put it into a representational object, and move it outside of themselves. And those are the things that we do not have in this culture.
0: That is true, because coming from Africa, every culture, you know, we are ritualistic people. We mm-hmm. have rituals for everything, even naming a child and all, all this. So doing that, bringing that kind of concept to this culture, I think is really what you're doing is really powerful. Because there's a lot of a... meaning to ritual and it helps us uh, really get rid of a lot of stuff.
1: Exactly. It helps you get rid of stuff. That's exactly right. So it must have been pretty strange for you coming here and seeing how grief is handled here compared to what you must have been used to.
0: Yes, yes. Of course, uh, the culture difference is, is very big uh, from where I come from and here. And, yeah. and the culture doesn't also embrace death. People are scared of death and dying here. Yes. You know, absolutely. so all those things create tremendous fear when it comes to death and dying.
1: Yes, and it, and it wasn't always that way in in the West. You know, mm-hmm. um it got that way around the 1930s when death became medicalized because yeah. up until about the industrial revolution people still took care of their own dead at home and buried people on their own land and you know, and even way earlier than that, you know, people there was death all around. You saw it everywhere. So it wasn't a big deal and people lived in rural areas on farms. So you would see animals die and you would see animals mating and giving birth. You know, you'd see natural mm. life around yes. you.
2: Yes.
1: And and we don't have that anymore. Mm. We're separated from natural life unless you live on a farm or something. <laughs> but <laughs> most people in the cities Um, just don't have that kind of exposure. And then, after the Industrial Revolution, death moved from the family to the hospital. And then we, we lost our knowledge of how to be with death and how to take care of dying.
0: Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast
1: recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.
0: That takes us to our next topic: uh, grief and faith. Yes. Um, do you find that most bereaved people question their faith? I know I did. Um, I lost my parents when I was young. I was 12 years old when yeah. they were murdered in front of me. And and for me, that that led me to questioning faith. You know, if God is there, why did this happen? You know, right. so yeah. So do you find a lot of that and how do you deal with that?
1: Um, I don't know if you're. Um, familiar with my new book. It's called Grief and God, When Religion Does More Harm Than Healing. And so that's a really big issue for me. And mm-hmm. the way I deal with that is when somebody says something to me like what you just said, mm-hmm. like this terrible thing happened to my parents, where was God? Yes. My question to you would be, well, tell me what you think God is. Hmm and i would ask you to talk to me about your image of god and and what usually comes out is they people say well god is this entity or being hmm. that loves me and i have spent my life being a good christian and i honor god and i didn't do anything against god and so in exchange for my devotion god should protect me hmm. That's the belief that most people have. Yes. And that's problematic Hmm. because it doesn't work that way, does it?
0: No, it doesn't.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) At least for me, it didn't. (laughs) Well,
1: for everybody, it doesn't, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the most, I mean, this is the book of Job, right? Isn't that exactly what that whole story is supposed to be about? The most pious, responsible, devoted man on earth still lost everything. And the way they explain it in the book of Job is that God was playing a trick on him, which is just a ridiculous story, but it has (laughs) a point. And and the point is that there is no protection. You know, you could could be, you know, a, a saint and you're, and look at the saints, you know, they, they inflicted suffering on themselves. Or look at all the Christians that were persecuted. I mean, it. what happens when people have that conflict with faith is two things. Either they're going to cling to that idea of God and be angry that God didn't protect them because they believe that God was supposed to protect them. And then they're going to be angry forever because that will never resolve. Or they can modify their image of God and let their faith shift a little bit into Hmm. something a little bit more
2: flexible.
0: Hmm. So our image of God actually plays a much bigger part than we think sometimes when it comes to grief.
1: I think it, it plays a huge part, you know. Now, for some people... God doesn't even come into the picture with grief. But for Mm, people for whom it does, Mm. I mean, I I saw that in the hospital all the time as a chaplain. You know, people would say to me, why did God do this to me? Or working with parents, um, I had a, a client once who both of, no, not both of his children. Yes, his daughter and his son were both killed in a car crash. And this man said to me, I never asked God for anything except one thing. The only thing I ever asked God for is that he would keep my children safe. Mm -hmm. I didn't ask for money. I didn't ask for happiness. I just asked for that. Why didn't he give me that? And my answer to him is because God isn't Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. God doesn't work that way. You know, you don't get to ask for special favors. Mm -hmm. We all ask her. So Don't true. we all do that? You know, no, we all say, oh, true. please let me get this job. Please let me lose 10 pounds, mm. you know, or whatever. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's it doesn't work that way. And I think that we all need a theological overhaul if we're going to be at peace with our understanding of the divine, because that way of thinking ha- does nothing but prove itself wrong over and all over All
0: the again. time. True.
1: All the time. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. What are some of the uh, dysfunctional forms of religious coping when it comes to grief that you found in your work and in your research? Oh,
1: great question. Um, are you you have a doctor of ministry? Degree, yes, right. Yes. How, did you ever study um, Kenneth Pargament's Religious Coping Scale? Have you ever heard of that? Yes. Yeah, so he did some really brilliant work on that, where he divided it into positive and negative religious coping styles. Mm. And um, negative religious coping is um, blaming it on Satan or um, thinking that you're being punished. So let's say your child dies, Mm. and very frequently the parent will think, I'm being punished. For something I did. And God took this child to punish me. That is never true. And it's considered a form of negative religious coping because God doesn't work that way. Now, who am I to say that God doesn't work that way? Because we know it doesn't work that way because we see it all the time. Yes. There's no reason why, um, you know, why this thing we call God would want to hurt you by killing your child. Mm. Right? Especially if you are devoted and religious and you love God and you haven't done anything wrong. Now, some people will say, well, I must have done something wrong. You know, um, let's see, what did I do wrong? Uh, I had sex before marriage, or I got divorced, or this whole list of things that they think that God doesn't like. Well, that's not God. That's the church that made those rules. We don't know what God likes and doesn't like, so it's just an endless cycle of 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 going nowhere. So that's one form of religious coping. Um, you know, um, to describe that you have to go really far back. and did, did you ever study Fowler's stages of faith development? Yes. Really interesting stuff.
0: <laughs> it and is. Yeah.
1: It is so interesting, and so I use that a lot in my teaching, and. You know, basically, what he it sort of follows the um cognitive development in the lifespan, you know, that we know from psychology, where like at two years old, you're able to think this way, and at seven yeah. years old, it's blah, blah, blah. And so this idea of God as a protective father, Um, that lives in the sky and watches over us. And if he doesn't like something that we did, he punishes punishes us. us. (laughs) Right. And if he does like something, he rewards us. Hmm, Well, who does that?
2: Yeah.
1: Well, that's what a parent does when raising a child. So most people learn this idea of God when they're really little, like five years old, three years old. And you grow up thinking of God that way. And you never question it, because why would you? It's Supported, you know, through church and culture your whole life. But then all of a sudden, now you're 45 and you get a terrible disease or you get in an accident and you lose both of your legs and some terrible thing happens. Now you're going to start questioning that. Well, what about that father in the sky hmm. that was supposed to reward me and protect me? What did I do to deserve this? And you're never going to find an answer. No. Now, some people do find an answer. I have this one uh, client who. Her nine-year-old son died from leukemia, and she believes that this happened because God was punishing her, because 20 years earlier, she'd had an abortion. Mm. So she believed God was taking the one life in exchange for the other.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. That's terrible.
1: So terrible. And so, you know, I would say to her, tell me how this helps you. How does it help you to believe this? And she would say, Well, it, it gives me an explanation. Hmm. And I would say, and, and this is a very chaplaincy kind of thing to say, <laughs> like <laughs> What what would happen if there just isn't an explanation? Could you be comfortable with that? Hmm. Rather than the explanation that you're telling yourself, which is only harmful to you. What hmm. if shit just happens? Yeah. <laughs> or I mean, that's one way. That's or maybe true. it happened for a reason like my... I know that the reason I went through what I did with my son was to propel me into the work that I do now. So there's mm-hmm. my... that's the explanation that I tell myself.
0: Yeah, you found meaning in that, uh, exactly. in that difficult situation, yeah.
1: But, you know, my, my, uh, my client, her meaning is that she's being punished for having an abortion. Now, she's welcome to have that meaning if she wants it, but
0: I but is that so. helpful? Meaning,
1: exactly. You know, but and but who are we to judge it? You know, that's right? A chaplain, true. <laughs> we have to let her be with wherever she wants to be.
0: Yes, that is true. So, how can yeah. you? Any advice for chaplains right now or grief counselors who are you know? Any advice on how they can help individuals cope through the stages of grief?
1: Um, well, um. Uh, we don't use the term stages of grief anymore. That yeah. um but there's um what what's commonly used now is something called tasks
2: of yes. grieving. Yes.
1: And so you know, I you know, I educate people about the tasks of grieving. Warden's task, and Therese Rando has the six R's. Yes. Of mourning, you can find all this stuff on the internet, and those are really helpful. We didn't have these until just a, maybe a decade ago. And this is new information that grievers don't know about. So Mm. I think educating them about grief theory is really important. Mm. Um, I think we also have to teach them, uh, teach people that there is a difference between healthy grieving and unhealthy grieving. For a really long time, it was very popular for people to believe that it's okay to grieve any way you want for as long as you want. And that actually is not okay. Because you're, right? You're supposed to move through, your, like, like how ritual releases stuff.
0: Yes, you're there's a movement.
1: A movement, exactly. The energy has to move. Mm. And you know, if you're still angry three years later and dysfunctional so that it's affecting your health and your relationships and your ability to function, now you're in complicated grief, which is a whole other kind of grief. Mm. And that, that requires a pretty serious intervention. Yes. Um, and, and trauma. I mean, you as a child, you've had two traumas because of the death of your brother as well. Yes. And so giving people tools for releasing trauma is also extremely important. And I really believe, as I think you do too, that without uh, ritual that trauma just stays it stays
0: and that's the power of ritual and sometimes i feel like people don't take rituals seriously
1: yeah you know absolutely. but there's that
0: power to ritual to let go to release
1: can i ask you a yes,
0: personal yes question?
1: so how how did you cope with that trauma i mean you were very young when your parents were killed so you probably didn't know even what trauma was but did you figure out like what to do with your body to let that release from you?
0: Oh, good question. Uh, it's, it's really been um, a process of years. Yes. And um, a lot of working through those tasks, those challenges. Uh, but when I left and moved to Johannesburg, South Africa, there I was able to get some help Um to help me go through these rituals of letting go, of um, embracing um, this newness, this new journey without the people that I love dearly. And Mm -hmm. um, I could say it's it's a process. It's hard to fully... I don't think I've fully recovered, you know, from my trauma. No. Yeah. So I'm still... mm -hmm.
1: uh, and recover is a difficult word because you don't recover mm. you know you re- like you recover from a broken arm, yeah, right. The bone mends itself, but it's never the same as it was before it was broken, so mm.
2: you
1: you know it, we need a new word, not recover, but just yeah. re reframe or re mm. restructure. Or something, and you're doing, you know, the same thing I'm doing. I mean, you use that to make meaning for your life and to help other people.
0: Yes, it's a. So <laughs> it's it's just a uh, how life works, I guess. You know, when you're dealing with your pain, um, the strength and and the experience you've drawn from that, you use that to help other people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. And and you walk with that trauma in your heart all the time, all the but time. it makes you. Yeah, and it makes you walk through the world differently. You know, you're more attuned, you're more spiritual, you're more aware of what is precious. I mean, there's a mm. lot of stuff that you have that somebody else doesn't have. Mm. And then I guess, you you know, I ultimately, this is how I feel. I'm grateful for those changes. Mm. I wish my son was still here on earth with me, but I am actually in a place where I can say I'm grateful for what I've become because of the loss. Oh, let me talk about the. Um, you have to talk to in us Chicago.
0: about your trip yeah, to Chicago. Yeah. So,
1: um, March 14th, I'm uh, speaking for this group called IANS, the International Association of Near Death Studies. Mm-hmm. And they are all about doing research on near death experience. So, I'm speaking there on March 14th. And the next day, I'm doing my Grief as a Mystical Journey Mm. workshop, It's a four-hour workshop. And people can find that information at um, spiritualityandgrief.com. And uh, I I would love to see you at at one or both of those events, since it's not too far from where you live.
0: No, it's not. Talk to us also about the original Afterlife Conference. Is that the one you have in Downers Grove?
1: Yes. So the Afterlife Conference, I started 10 years ago, hmm. and we have it in a different city every year. And it just so happens this year, it's going to be in Downers Grove, Illinois. Um, at, at the web address is afterlifeconference.com, and... um we have an amazing lineup of people. When we started out, we were really into afterlife stuff. You know, we had uh, presentations on near death experience and out of body experience. We had mediums and um, that kind of, and people, you know, who've written books about receiving communications from their loved ones on the other side. And then as the years went by, as I myself became more academic, mm. I made the conference more academic so now we have we still have all the metaphysical uh woo woo stuff if you will but we also have religious scholars um medical doctors nurses we've got two people right now ken doka who's the senior consultant to the hospice foundation of america he's talking about his research on extraordinary experiences of the dying like dreams and deathbed visions and visitations. And also Christopher Kerr, who is from Hospice Buffalo in New York, he's doing a presentation on his new book, which is on the same topic, Dreams and Visions of the Dying. But we also have um, shamans. Uh, We actually have a group of our uh, kind of resident shamans who are there every year who Hmm. teach ceremony. And um, working with Death and Dying, helping the soul cross over and ceremonies for grief. So we have a lot of ceremony every year. Um, I'm trying to think who else is there. Uh, We have music fanatology, you know, people who play music in hospice for the dying. There's just tons of stuff. And it's great. So it's afterlifeconference.com.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you Wow, this has, been <laughs> this has been amazing Thank you And I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting you when you come to Chicago
1: Okay, well go to um, spiritualityandgrief.com Go click through to the Chicago events So you'll see what they are okay. And um, if you want to come to the workshop on Sunday um, Well, you don't even have to register Just show up, you know I'll, okay. I'll know who you are
0: <laughs> <laughs> Okay uh, Thank you very much
1: Oh, Saul, thank you you so much and bless you for your beautiful work.
0: Blessings to you, too.
2: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Reverend Dr. Terry Daniel is an interfaith clinical chaplain, certified trauma specialist, and end-of-life educator. The focus of our work is to assist dying and grieving individuals to discover a more spiritually spacious understanding of death and dying. Terry conducts workshops throughout the United States to help the dying and the bereaved find healing. Her work is acclaimed by physicians, hospice workers, grief counselors, clergy and the bereaved for its pinpoint clarity on the process of dying and grieving.